Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Do you have a warrant for your arrest for the murder of William Moore, who was the gas station attendant? But you're wrong. From NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice. A crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Ruff. Jamie Snow's case is riddled with jailhouse informants. One after another, we've gone through witnesses in this case, and time and time again, we find either that the statements couldn't be true, or that the witness had in fact recanted the statement after trial. And in just about every case, we find that the state withheld critical information. And today's subject is no different. In today's episode, we're going to break down the testimony of a man named Bruce Rowland. Rowland came forward to police in 1999 once Detective Dan Katz took the case and testified against Jamie at his trial. But as I began to go through all of the documents connected to Rowland, it is even more of a confusing spider web than any of the other witnesses that we've covered so far. So today, we're going to do something a little bit different. I've invited the woman who brought me Jamie's case to join me. So today, to help walk us through the testimony of Bruce Rowland is Miss Tammy Alexander. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that he did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tammy, thanks for for joining me. The, I've uh, I've been trying to put together all this information about the witness Bruce Rowland, and it's a mess. It is. <laughs> it's it's like this is <laughs> as it is with most things I'm finding in this case. Everything is this just like spider web that you know everything's leading you in different directions, and then those lead in different directions. But then down the road they reconnect and. So I, when we were we were messaging back and forth, you were helping me organize. I thought that the best way to try to really give everyone the full picture about this witness, Bruce Rowland, is to have you come on and kind of walk through this with me. So I, I kind of want to start with what the jury heard. You know, kind of the our, our basis in all this is, you know, Jamie was convicted from his trial. And Bruce Rowland testified at Jamie's trial. And when I was reading the transcript, there's some there's some interesting parts in the transcript. And the first one I noticed was in just in the first couple of pages. Yeah, I mean, he I mean, the interesting part of that piece where he, he, he couldn't identify Jamie was when he was Tina asked him to Tina Griffin asked him to point him out in court. And he was she said, do you see him sitting here? And he said, no. Right. And, you know, I I've spoken to Jamie about Bruce Rowland months ago, and Jamie's always told me that he doesn't know Bruce at all. He doesn't know Bruce. Right. And so that was interesting because Bruce's testimony is that he does know Jamie, that they had these conversations. But then I, I'm going to go ahead right here and just read the exchange back and forth from the trial testimony where Griffin is trying to get Bruce to identify Jamie who's sitting right in front of him. Tina Griffin. Mr. Rowland, do you know an individual by the name of Jamie Snow? Rowland. Yes, I do. Griffin. 
Do you see Jamie Snow here in the courtroom today? Roland, no, I don't. You don't see him in the courtroom today? I don't see him over there. You don't see Jamie Snow here? Uh Uh-uh. I'm going to show you what's marked as People's Exhibit number 53 and ask you if you recognize him in that photograph. Roland, yes. Who do you recognize that photograph to be? Jamie Snow. It's showing you what is marked as People's Exhibit number 56. Ask if you recognize who is in that photograph. Jamie Snow. Okay, I'm going to show you what is marked as People's Exhibit number 36 and ask if you recognize anybody in that. Roland, yes. Griffin, who do you recognize that to be? Jamie Snow. Now, are you indicating that you don't see anybody in the courtroom that looks like those photographs of Jamie Snow, how you knew him back when you knew him? Roland, that's correct. She starts showing him exhibits, you know, and pictures of him because she's like, you don't, you don't see him? And he's like, uh-uh. Right. <laughs> he goes, uh, <laughs> well, who, who, who do you, uh, let me show you exhibit number 53, which is a picture of Jamie. Do you recognize who that is? And she said, Jamie Snow. What other picture is she going to be showing of him on the stand yeah. right then? To me, to me, that was a very clear depiction of not only Bruce, but all these witnesses where, I mean, what she just demonstrated to me, maybe the jury didn't catch on to it, was the only way he knows Jamie Snow is because the police and the prosecution have showed him pictures of this guy and said, testify against this guy and we'll make you a deal. But when Jamie's sitting right there in front of him, I mean, it's ridiculous. She's like, here's a picture. Recognize him. Yep. Jamie Snow. Now, do you see him anywhere over there? Nope. <laughs> and not only that, she shows him three. Exhibit 56, that's Jamie Snow. Exhibit number 36, that's Jamie Snow. Mm-hmm. Um, she shows him 53, that's, that's Jamie Snow. And then she goes, "Who? Uh, do you, now, do you see him in this courtroom? And he's like, no. Right. <laughs> which, which tells okay. you he knows those pictures are Jamie Snow because she showed him those pictures before. You know, so that he would know that, you know, who Jamie Snow is, but he's never actually seen him in person. So he doesn't know what he what he looks like. Exactly. And I don't know what the legal, you know, issues would be behind that. But how how she got away with sitting there and pulling that off in court while some witnesses on the stand is beyond me. I don't you know, that just sounds incredible to me yeah. when I read it the first time. I, I thought that was incredible. Yeah, it's interesting that the jury didn't seem to take notice of that. But so that, but so that's how his, his testimony begins. And, you know, the, the basis of his, uh, of his testimony is that Jamie, there, well, there's two things. The first one is about a jacket that Susan Powell tried to, or Susan Claycomb tried to sell him. Yes. Well, I mean, that was his, that was what he said, but I think that was a story that he gotten, he had gotten from someone else. I, I believe she, it might've been from Travis and I'm sorry, I get the names confused. It was somebody that wasn't in the case, but that, uh, she had been dating, mm-hmm. you know, but way back in the day and she had pawned a leather jacket that was similar to the one that they, that Gutierrez, um, had described, which a lot of, you know, dudes had those zipper, leather zipper jackets back then. But she had pawned it. There's a whole, you know, other backstory about that that isn't really relevant. Well, when I was when I was reading it, you know, he's he's talking about this leather jacket, and obviously he's, he he says, you know, she tried to sell it to him. She pawned it, and and she got it from Jamie Snow, which you know, obviously you know why he's testifying to that. So that you know, because they have a witness that says the guy was wearing a leather jacket. But let me let me play right here real quick. Let's go back in time to when Bruce was interviewing with Katz and Barkas in 1999. So, again, this is eight years after the murder. And this is a 38 minute interview. But here's this is five minutes of it where they're talking about this jacket. And there's something really important here. And it's the color of the jacket. After you heard about it on the radio, TV or read it in the newspaper. Did you ever have any conversations or conversation with anyone concerning that case? A couple months after. After it came out in the paper, yeah. So we're talking sometime in May of 1991? Mm-hmm. 
that would be my guess. And who did you talk with? The mayor or so if I remember. Uh, Susan Powell uh, was my first initial contact concerning this uh, actual homicide. How do you know Susan Powell? Uh, friends and family went to school with her brother. Um, met him on my own. And you had a conversation with Susan Powell in reference to this case? Yes. And where did this conversation take place? In her house, her mother's house. And that's on West Oakland Avenue in Bloomington? Yes, sir. Who was present during that conversation? I know that her mother was there, probably down in the basement working. Um, Susan and I. Can you tell me what this conversation was about? The initial conversation was about a leather coat that she asked me to buy from her. She had acquired it from, at that time, I didn't know where she got it from. There was nothing said about any murder or homicide like that. It was just about a leather coat and asked me to buy it And my skin was sensitive, so I didn't have it. Did she show you the jacket? Yeah. Did you try it on at all? No. And can you remember what the jacket looked like? The jacket was, I know that it was a brown leather jacket and it had praise on it, like a Did it have any zippers or buttons or, or anything like that on it? Do you remember? I believe it was a zipper without a liner. Did you have any more conversations with Susan Powell? Not at that time, concerning the third time. Sometime later you spoke again about uh, about this case with Susan Paul? Yes. At the, at the second time that we had the conversation was after two detectives came to her parents' house. And Let me stop you there. Okay. So two detectives came out to Susan Powell's residence where she was staying now in West Oakland after and talked to her. Right. So the first conversation that you had with Susan Powell about the leather jacket was prior to or after the police were there? The very first conversation? It was before. Before the police came out? Yeah. The second conversation you had with Susan Powell was before or after the police were there? After. Okay. So tell me about the second conversation. The second the second conversation, of course, Susan was kind of in panic and a little distressed, but conversation went as such as, as they're looking for the leather coat and, and they had something to do with the homicide for that nature. The police were looking for this leather coat? Yes. Did she give a leather coat to the police? No. Did she still have a leather coat? She didn't have a leather coat. She pawned it at a pawn shop. From what, I from what she told me, that's, that's what happened to the leather coat. Who was present when this conversation took place? Uh, her mother's always there, so uh, I know that her mother was there and, and maybe one of her brothers was there. And then just you and Susan? Mm -hmm. And you guys were upstairs and her mother came us downstairs working? No, we was in the main floor and her mother works down in the basement. Did she, on this second conversation, did she tell you where this jacket came from? Yeah. And what did she say about it? She said it came from Jenner's house. Do you remember her exact words? The exact words was that, that she had gotten it from Jamie Swan. And I don't know whether Jamie owed her money or she owed Jamie money or how it went down, but she declined the leather jacket from Jamie Swan. And did Susan Powell state that that leather jacket was used in the armed robbery by Jamie Snow at the Park gas station? She never said that it was used in the armed robbery. The detectives informed her that that jacket had something to do with the armed robbery. So it was the, or the homicide, actually. It was the detectives that told her that, not her story. I know I, I didn't know what the detectives said. I don't know if that's even like that. Other than those two conversations with Susan Powell, have you ever talked to Susan Powell about this case? No, no idea.
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry. Sorry. We're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No. Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So what I noticed in his interview in 1999 is that he's describing it as a brown leather jacket, which absolutely does not fit Gutierrez's description at all. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, and the reason that I'm thinking it was a, a black leather jacket was because in one of those police reports from way back when of the thousands that we have, there was that the one that she got from her boyfriend while he went to jail and while she pawned it. Mm-hmm. That was a, that was a black leather jacket, and I did not catch the thing about it being a brown leather jacket. That that's a very distinct difference. Right, and that's the and that's the thing. So the so to clear that up the. Uh, because the listeners don't know all that story yet. So there is there are police reports. Susan Claycomb did, in fact, pawn a, a leather jacket, a black leather jacket. And it was what well, you all let you tell the story. How did that actually come about? Um, it was way back in the beginning when they were looking, they were looking for it. And I believe that it was Susan. I had read the police report when we were looking through for some other stuff, but it it didn't fit anything. It didn't fit the timeline at all. Um, and it was her boyfriend. I'm almost thinking that it was Travis. He actually called the police and he was like, I want my jacket back. I need to sell it to put money on, on the books because I guess they had taken it. Right. That's what I remembered was it was, it was her boyfriend's jacket and her boyfriend went to jail. And so she pawned the jacket. Right. While he was in jail. But the timeline, none of it, none of it makes any sense and adds and means anything with Jamie's case. Until Bruce Rowland comes in and tells them that Susan tried to in the in the interview we just heard, Susan says she tried to or Bruce says that Susan tried to sell him this leather jacket and then comes to him again, tries to sell it, ends up pawning it when the police come to talk to her about it. She had pawned it. And his connection there is that he says she told him that she got the jacket from Jamie Snow. But the problem with Bruce is Bruce doesn't actually know anything about this crime. So he tells the story of it being a brown leather jacket when Gutierrez saw somebody in a black leather jacket. Yeah, with zippers and flaps and all that stuff. Right. Now, you do have, to be fair, Martinez says the person was in a brown jacket, but not leather. He says he was wearing a brown, like, spring-type jacket. Yeah. Yeah. So neither of the, But neither of those... Bruce's description of the jacket that Susan supposedly tried to sell to him and then pawned doesn't fit at all with anything connected to our crime scene. No. But but to me, when I was listening to that recorded interview in 99, that was my first clue that I'm hearing, okay, there's clear indications of deception in this man when he's talking and he's trying to fit a round peg into a square hole. He's just It sounds to me like he's trying to give the state something. For for some reward, I would imagine, for some kind of a, a deal or something. Yeah. And I, I'm not sure if you want to use this or go into it, but Danielle, his ex-wife, who was his then-wife, mm-hmm. I have talked to her as well. And she, you know, she said he was a mess. I mean, you know, he was, he was looking at a lot of charges, you know, at the time, and he couldn't even stay sober enough to prep. I mean, he was just a disaster. He was looking at a lot of time. And and this is Bruce Bruce's wife, Danielle, was telling you this. Yes. That was his wife at the time, but she's no longer they're no longer married. And she's she's written an affidavit, right? 
Correct. Okay. Uh, can, can you kind of briefly summarize what she, and we'll put her affidavit on the website, but what her affidavit stated? She was saying that, that Bruce lied at, at, at trial to save himself. And what she told me just personally, you know, was that he was like, I don't know. We've got our family and I don't know what, I can't go away for that long. You know, I can't, I can't do that much time because he had had so many DUIs that he was looking at extended Extended, you know, they were felony DUIs. He got a sweet deal. He, you know, he ended up getting five years for all of these. And that's <laughs> so, after multiple I mean, DUIs and caught with revoked license while driving under the influence. And that's what he was in for in 99, right? When he all of a sudden then goes to the police and gives him this statement was another DUI, right? Well, he had gotten picked up. Mm-hmm. He had gotten another DUI. He went and then his lawyer went straight to. Dan Katz and Marcus and said, it was one of them and said, Hey, you know, he knows about this murder. Right. And he's also, there's, there's more getting back to his trial testimony. You know, the, the two major points that I see that probably were hits against Jamie were the, you know, the, the leather jacket. And then, uh, the big one was, he says that Jamie straight up confessed to him while they were, while they were locked up together. Right. So he says that that Jamie that he was working on a sanitation crew, which gave him access to what they called well, well to seg. Right. So to be clear here, this is while Jamie's in prison. Bruce is saying that he was, and he's saying Jamie was in segregation, and Bruce is saying that he was a trustee doing sanitation work, so he had access to segregation where Jamie was. Exactly. Right. Jamie was in SEG, but he, he really wasn't in SEG. They made it out in trial like he was on a, what they call the circuit. And the circuit is if you've done something really bad or, you know, it, it's, it really comes from being on the gang circuit where they will rotate you through prison. They don't want you someplace for very long. And he, he said that Jamie told him that he was on the circuit because of something that happened in, in Bloomington. Right. But he wasn't. He was there on a court writ. So when you go on a court writ, you might have to go stay at a prison that's closer to where you are. You might have to stay there for a few weeks to go to court. Mm-hmm. It's just a court court writ, a court date. And that's why he was there. And he was there for, I don't know, two weeks maybe, max? In December, right? Mm-hmm. In December of 94. I think the dates that Ray gave us from the intake and outtake paperwork was it was only seven days it was like december 7th through the 14th or somewhere right around there it was like it was like a week yeah Yeah. which by the way is not when bruce says that he talked to him right didn't he say it was back in like april of that year yeah he did you're right in his initial police report he did he said he was there because he did it as soon as he was transferred from lincoln and he said that's when he talked to him and then he, in February of 94, he was transferred. This is his statement. February, he was transferred. And then in April, in April of 94, he said he was transferred to Logan. And then he said a couple of months later was when he had the conversation with Jamie, which would estimate that June of 94 in Logan. And Jamie wasn't in Logan in June of 94. He was not. He didn't get there until December. Right. So Bruce in, in 99 now. At trial, I want to make clear, we're going to get into some new information here in a minute, but at trial, Bruce Rowland was asked at least once, if not repeatedly, if he'd had any contact with the state or police prior to 1999 when he gave this interview I'm about to play. That's correct? Repeatedly. Repeatedly by the state and also the defense attorney. Right. Now, this is important uh, as you guys are listening to this. So this is the 1999 interview. Where Bruce comes forward again. This is part of that that bit I played about Susan Claycomb and her in her leather jacket earlier. So this is Bruce's that same interview. Another part of it is about six minutes where he tells. Uh, and I think he's talking to Katz in this one. I always get those two voices mixed up, but I believe it's Katz he's talking to, right? I think so. Yeah. So he's, he's speaking to Katz here, and this is him explaining what Jamie Snow confessed to him. While he was in prison in June of 94, which, by the way, again, Jamie wasn't in the same prison as him in June of 94. But here's that section of interview. Did he ever make a quote to you about what he did to cut gas station? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 
he said that they were out partying at Whitmer's house, which I, which is three or four houses down from the park gas station at that time. Um, said that uh, he went up to the park gas station, tried to buy a pack of cigarettes. The, the attendant there wouldn't give him to him, so he got out of here. Okay. Why wouldn't the attendant give him the cigarettes? James said he didn't have enough money. So he said the attendant wouldn't give him the money, wouldn't give him the cigarettes. Right. Okay. Tried, tried, pretty much tried to break the cigarettes at that time. Go ahead. After that, Jamie said that they had went back down there, and I'm at that point I, I was like, "What do you mean, they?" And he says, "Crap," which I'm familiar with that name too as Mark McGowan. Okay. And at that at that time, they went back down to Park Gas Station. Jamie goes in, gets the cigarettes. Um, there's altercation of some sort. I don't think there was any fistfights or anything like that. Jamie got his cigarettes. Um, Jamie said he shot him, took the money out of the door, got in the car and left. Okay. Before he went through all this this information about what happened at the gas station, when he said that he did that at the Clark gas station, did he say something specific as to what he did at the Clark gas station? Specific, there's any. Did he ever tell you that he killed William Murray? Oh, yeah, he said he shot that And what else did he say about that when he said that? He said he had to take care of his business because the guy already recognized him from the previous encounter when he tried to get the cigarette. Did he also say that when he killed Little, that there was what that he wasn't concerned about the police department? He yeah, he, he boosted that. He what? said there ain't no way in hell they're gonna get no way in hell they got any evidence was for fucking fucking back. Earlier when we were talking before we started the yes. you made the comment that Jamie said, I killed Little and there ain't a fucking thing BPD can do about it. Exactly. Is that his exact word? Well, I don't think he was so polite as to say BPD. But yes, basically, he said there ain't a fucking thing the cops can do about it. Okay. He wasn't concerned about any evidence at the, at the scene? Or no, no, no. It had been about three years already. He felt pretty free about it. Okay, so you're you're saying, let me let me get this straight, that Jamie told you that Jamie and some people were hanging out at Whitmer's house yeah. that night. Jamie sometime after hanging out left Whitmer's house to get cigarettes. Yeah. Did he ever tell you who went with them to get those cigarettes, if anybody? The first time? No, he wasn't, he wasn't specific about that at all. Did he ever tell you if they walked or drove, if he walked or drove to the Clark gas station the first time to get cigarettes? No. Did he ever say that when he went there to get the cigarettes the first time, when he didn't have enough money to buy the cigarettes, what happened between him and the other? He said that the William Little kid would not give him a cigarette. And he said that out of amazement because Jamie Snow is intimidating. He tried to be intimidating, tried to be effective. And he was shocked that the, the little kid didn't just give him a pack of cigarettes. Was Jamie upset about, about William Little not giving the cigarettes? Oh, sure. How do you know that? Well, I mean, he fell in the conversation. But I'm going to get my cigarette. So he left the gas station. Before you leave the gas station, you said he said that that William Little kid. Did he actually know him by name? Did he actually use his name? No, he didn't. He didn't use the William Little kid. Okay. Well, he, he used Little. He used the last name. Yeah. Right. So he leaves the gas station. Did he say where he went? No, not at that time. But he said he, he he said he came back. They come back. They came back. They come back. They came back. Did he say how long the time he was first there? the time they came back? No. 
Did you get a sense of how long it was in the conversation? My assumption was right away. Did he say who they were? He did say one name, one name was Stretch. Did he say what Stretch's role was or what Stretch did while no. Jim was at the gallery? He didn't specify what, what role or Stretch's in a car, out of the car, in the gas station. No, no. Did he ever mention who was driving the car? No. Did he ever mention what kind of a car it was? No, I didn't. Did he say what happened the second time he wanted to get a cigarette? Still, Jamie didn't have enough money to get the cigarettes, but he was determined to get the cigarettes and wanted the rice to Did he tell you what happened? He opened the door. Did he say, I asked for the cigarettes? Did he make any, any specific comment about what happened? Jamie said when he entered, uh, got his cigarettes, got the money, or actually, he said, Got the cigarettes, guy started altercation, shot the guy, got the money, and off they went. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Okay, so then that interview... That uh, that Bruce gave to police in 99, again, according to Bruce at trial, multiple times, that is the first contact he's had with the police or the state about this case. Yeah. So he's saying that that Jamie confessed to him in 1994. Five years go by. He gets arrested for a DUI and he's facing some big time charges. And then he calls his lawyer, Mac Arnold, calls the police and says he's got information about the little homicide, which sounds like, you know, that's basically what everyone was doing. They're like, everybody's jumping on the bandwagon to use Jamie to cut a deal. Yeah. So and this is, you know, of his trial testimony. Again, the entire testimony is on our website. But let me read to you this portion where he lays out specifically what Jamie said to him. Tina Griffin. Now, when you were at that unit and you first made contact with Jamie Snow, how did that come about? Roland, we just recognized each other. Griffin, and did you then have some conversation with him? Roland, we had a brief conversation. My question was in regards to why he was on the circuit. At that time, he stated that he was on the circuit because of his big name that he had got and he was affiliated with a gang throughout the system. Griffin, so the information about him being on the circuit was coming from him? Yes. That is where you got that information? Yes. And did he make reference to any particular incident that got him a big name or how? Yeah, he stated that it was the Clark gas station incident. And did you then follow up on that? I asked him, it went down like, because shooting somebody over $40 is like, you know, that's a... Uh... So when I asked, I asked him like, I can't... You shot that kid for over 40-some dollars, and he said the conversation led into how kind of it went down with a pack of cigarettes. He didn't have enough money to pay for a pack of cigarettes. William Little didn't let him get away with a free pack of cigarettes. There was an altercation, and then he left, and apparently when he left, he was upset. When he came back, he was determined to get the pack of cigarettes, and at that point, as Jamie said, Jamie said he shot him because he was scared he was going to recognize him, and he took the pack of cigarettes and what money he could find. 
So he said that he was, uh, Jamie told him that him and Stretch were at a party at Brian Whitmer's, which is a couple of houses down from the clock station. So they walk up there to get cigarettes and the attendant wouldn't give him a pack of cigarettes for free. And he felt like, Jamie felt like he should have a pack of cigarettes for free. And that really made him mad and they left. And they went back and then, um, they went back to the party and then they came back later and Jamie got his cigarettes and the money. And he does say specifically that he took the money out of the cash drawer, he took the money out of the drawer and then he, and then, uh, shot him and left because he said he was mad at first. And then he said, he said, but then he thought that he could recognize him, which is also what Travis also said that he shot him because he thought that Bill could recognize Jamie. Right. Travis Gaddis that we, we talked about a, a few weeks ago. You know, and so there, there's, there's some problems already. Like, if you just look at the details of what he's saying in his testimony. So he says Jamie goes to the gas station and wants free cigarettes. Bill won't give him any. He leaves, goes back to Whitmer's, and then goes back with Stretch driving, which is weird because Whitmer lives, what, two doors down? Yeah, and he, so, but for some reason, Stretch is driving. Jamie goes in again to try to get cigarettes for free again. Bill won't give them to him. He says that in his testimony that he 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 shoots him, or he, he takes the cigarettes, a pack of cigarettes, shoots Bill, and then takes whatever cash he can get, which he says was forty dollars that he shot him over for. Which and then he leaves. So there are a couple problems with that. One is it was not forty dollars, but whatever. But also the fact that he says the whole thing was over him stealing a pack of cigarettes. And we have the inventory from Donna Bernard's testimony that there were zero packs of cigarettes missing that hadn't been paid for through the register tape. And another problem about the cigarettes is Gutierrez said the dude was uh, in. They tried to tie this into Gutierrez and Gutierrez says the guy was lighting a cigarette. Right. Yeah. The whole thing with the leather coat is there. I mean. Am I nuts or is this is, is this case nuts? Because I'm I'm seeing like it's, it's the case. Okay, it's not just me. Because it's like Gutierrez's story is falling apart, even when he's on the stand with Tina Griffin. You know, he, he's obviously not describing Jamie Snow. That's a problem for them. So his testimony doesn't fit anything, but then they're still using a piece of it, a leather coat, and Roland says that. Susan tried to pawn a leather coat that she got from Jamie Snow. So, so listen to that part. Like, it's bananas. Like, none of it, none of it adds up. None of it makes any sense to me. You know, so, so like the, the smoking cigarettes thing. So, while they're trying to say that Gutierrez's testimony is relevant, that supposedly that was Jamie Snow because of this leather coat, but Jamie was there because he needed cigarettes and couldn't get any cigarettes from Bill. But the guy that Gutierrez described was standing there smoking cigarettes. And and you said uh, on the phone before we got on on the call here or on the air that you you had some information about Brian Whitmer too the guy whose house they were they were supposedly partying at. So Brian Whitmer and Jamie did not get along at all. I don't know that they ever fought. I, I can't recall if there was a story, but there was something that they just didn't like each other. He would have never been at Brian's house at a party. The big huge gaping hole in this whole story is that. Brian, uh, Brian was in jail that night. Brian was in jail that day. He was there, I think, on an assault charge. So Jamie got one good thing, you know, that his, he finally got his lawyers to do was to get Brian there to testify. And Brian didn't even know why he was testifying and he was furious because they have to, you know, when you do a court writ, you're, you're up at four o'clock in the morning and you're shackled for hours, you know. So he was pissed by the time he got to court. And you can kind of hear it in his testimony. And he was like, I don't have anything to do with Jamie, you know. Right. But he was in jail. And then they got his dad to come testify that Brian was in jail. But what they were trying to say was that Brian, Carol Whitmer is his father. Carol went to visit Brian in jail. And that's when they were having a party without Brian or Carol. Or anybody in the home. See, that doesn't even make any sense, <laughs> you know. And it's Easter Sunday. 
Right. Yeah. I was going to say, let's not forget it's it's Easter. These are all grown to be clear. These are grown adults with homes of their own that are at this point in order for this testimony to mean anything. They are partying at a man's house while he's gone on Easter Sunday. Right. Okay. Just making sure that that's clear to everybody that this is the story. And it blows me away. I make light of it, but it blows me away that the jury is like, all I can think of was there just so much of this that they just, they just, just couldn't filter through it anymore and, and just said to hell with it. I, I don't understand because every single witness that we have discussed and brought up and, and I, and I've, I've dug through every single one of them is ridiculous, like absolutely ridiculous. I think you, you believe, you know, and especially, I mean, at that time there weren't a whole bunch of, you know, there weren't innocence projects and there weren't people generally believed the state. And the way that she spun it, I mean, I have to say it was a, it was a craft. I mean, it was just it was brilliant the way that she pulled everything together for to make it all fit. But it didn't fit. Well, it, it's like a it's like a Frankenstein trial strategy. It's like they've got all these different bodies of, you know, witnesses. It's like, well, we're going to take a little piece from this one and a piece from this one and a piece from this one. And we're going to make a. We're going to make a narrative that fits, except for you have to ignore all the rest of it in order for that to happen. And it, and it seems like somehow she managed to convince everyone to do that. Yeah, her closing or arguments are where she does that. And uh, I would encourage, you know, when we're done with this or whenever they're posted, everybody read her closing arguments because it's just masterful. I will have her closing arguments up. I know I've posted portions of them, but I'm going to go ahead and have them up. With this episode, because, you know, we're we're going to kind of make a shift here. We have to moving forward to, to see if there's something we can do to do something actionable for Jamie moving forward, because at this point, we're just, you know, we're going one witness at a time looking at these witnesses and OK, that this person's lying. It's pretty clear Jamie's innocent. And there's a, it's like the same story every week. You know, so I'm hoping to get Ray Wilson on next week to help us use the investigator working on the case to help us kind of get a, a more of a general understanding. I'm going to post a bunch of the transcripts so people can read through them and then try to find something actionable that we can do and go through some of these tips that we have coming in as we move forward. But before we do that, I want to, you know, I want to, I want to put a button on Bruce here and demonstrate how his whole testimony absolutely falls apart after trial is over when there are some letters discovered. So we did discover letters. We, uh, Ray and I both have been following multiple, several of us have been following FOIAs for years. And we get different things each time. And, and, and they always send us thousands, hundreds of documents at a time. So we have to weed through all of them. So we got three letters. There were three letters. And one was written from Bruce to Charlie. Okay, let me get this right. Well, we initially had a tip. And it was actually from Tina Griffin, the assistant state's attorney who prosecuted this case. And that was, that was where she said she had gotten a letter. She called Charlie Crow and Charlie Crow documented that. That was a tip on, um, for So that was in April. And then Bruce wrote her on, uh, April 5th. Was he wrote Charles Renard, which is the was the McLean County State's attorney. And this is 1994. April 5th, 1994 is when the letter's dated. Okay. And he writes the state's attorney, which was Charles Renard. And Tina Griffin was the assistant state's attorney. And then he says he has information about the William, William Little case and then immediately starts talking about he's serving a three-year sentence for a DUI, driving on the boat. And he understands that there is a reward of $5,000 from private donors, and Crime Stoppers is also offering $2,500, reward leading to indictments. If there's help for me getting something like conditional discharge or early release from IDOC, I think I should be transferred to McLean County to discuss this matter. It doesn't feel safe there is what he said. And he's willing to do what it takes to get the indictment, and he hopes that they they can help each other. <laughs> That's what he says. Yeah. So he's writing this letter to the to the prosecutor, saying, "I've got information on the William Little homicide case. I can I can help you. 
I've got these charges. I'd like a reduced sentence. I want you to bring me back to the county to discuss this, and I will do whatever it takes to get an indictment in the Bill Little case. Now, mind you, this is a letter to the prosecutor's office in 1994 at trial in 2001. It's stated that he never spoke with anybody from the, or never had any contact with the DA's office prior to 99. Yeah. And then Tina Griffin responds on April 18th and just confirms receipt of his letter. It's signed by her. All of these are file stamped, McQueen County. So these are genuine. And that's a big deal, too, because it's Tina Griffin who is eliciting the testimony from Bruce Rowland that he's never had any contact with her. When, in fact, she not only received them, but she wrote letters back confirming that. And I'm certain that's probably the only reason he ended up talking to the police in 99. So she is, in my opinion, she is knowingly eliciting false testimony at that point. Yes, she is. And she's also knowingly, when she when she asks him over and over when the first time he contacted the state, and he says when he got that DUI in 1999, and he's never had contact with anybody before, I mean, she's, she's, you know, she's part of it. Right. She's lying to the court. She's lying to the jury. You know, we know this, but this is really blatant. Well, and aside from that, the reason she was able to do that is because the state's attorney's office withheld these letters from the defense, which is a Brady violation. Correct. Yes. So in April 18th of 94, she writes him back and says that she's confirming receipt of that letter, and she said that she's going to send Charlie Crow out there because he's the investigator on the case. And the next letter that we see is in May, May 6th of 1994. And now he's like, I, I received four more years for the charges of theft over $300 for tampering with an ATM machine. Then he tries to throw his girlfriend and her daughter under the bus and say that, you know, they, they conned him into doing that. And, you know, it's nothing's his fault ever. He knows that his information wasn't very much. So we know that Crow came out there and talked to him. Do you have the letter right there in front of you? I do. Can you read that part? Where he he makes the statement that he knew he didn't have very good information? Yeah. He said, I know that my information was not much in the little case, and I surely wish that I could help more. I feel my sentence was very harsh. This will cost me seven years of my life. I am in the process of filing a motion to reduce sentence to concurrent. So Tina Griffin says she's sending Detective Crow out to talk to him. He then writes his other letter and says, I'm sorry, I know that I didn't have much information for you in the little case. Now, we don't have that police report from Detective Crow in the file either, do we? No. No. So that, that report doesn't exist. He, th- this is a bigger deal. Like, like, so there's, there's, there's a couple things. There's, there's, I think pretty much everyone can agree that this guy's testimony was bullshit and it, it's in no way any indication of Jamie being guilty at all. But there's more to there's a systematic corruption that's going on in the state's attorney's office because what we know is in 94, he told Detective Crow something that didn't amount to shit, it amounted to nothing. It's like he's even apologizing because he brought him there and he really didn't have anything for him. But then in 99, he comes in, and again, this is after he says, I'll do whatever it takes to get an indictment, unable to do so in 94 when there's still an honest cop on the case, Crow. In 99, Now he comes in and says, he straight up confessed to me. He told me exactly how it happened. He told me he went in. There was the cigarettes. He left. He came back. He shot him. He took the money. He got in a car and he drove off. Clearly, that's not what he told Detective Crow in 1994 because that would have been a big deal. So the state knows, absolutely knows, that he has changed his story throughout the years. And then Tina Griffin has the audacity then to put him on the stand, tell his bullshit story, and then elicit out of him that he never talked to the police back in 1994. It's it's really, really sickening. It is. And he's asking for, you know, both times he's asked for a deal, and he keeps getting more time and more time. I got four years here. Wait a minute, I just got seven years. And he's trying to get, you know, concurrent instead of consecutive, and can you help me? And he ends with, I believe that maybe I could help you in the future. Right. Which he does. And then he gets that sweetheart deal he was looking for. Yep, he got the concurrent sentences for sure. 
Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the saga of Bruce Rowland. The reality is he's a nobody that knows nothing about this case. He was trying to get a deal for himself, didn't work in 94, tries again in 99, tells a new story, gets on the stand, tells a story. It contributes to Jamie's conviction. None of the details of his story add up to the actual evidence. We also know that he lied on the stand. And now this has not been filed, right? This particular Brady violation and what I would call prosecutorial misconduct, this hasn't been filed yet in Jamie's Jamie's defense yet, right? It has not. Okay, so hopefully that will be coming in, in the next the next round of, of Jamie's appeals. But after all this, you brought these letters up. I think you told me, was it on another podcast at some point? Yeah, so we have a group that supports us called um, Injustice Anywhere out of Chicago. And uh, when we got these letters at the time, Bruce Fisher, who is over that organization, was doing podcasts about some of the cases that he was supporting, and um, he was willing to let me come on and talk about the letters. So I have been trying to contact Bruce online for a while, and he, he, he did give me his number. And I had been trying to call him a couple of times, but I never could catch him. I think he wasn't answering the phone. So we did the podcast and we we explained everything that basically you and I just went through. And um after the podcast that evening, because I, you know, of course he had my number because I had been trying to call him. And he called me later, later that afternoon after it was aired. And he was like, you know, initially he was just kind of trying to backtrack on everything. You know, he's like, I didn't write those letters. And I said, Bruce, did you see the letters? They're handwritten. They're from prison. He's like, he's like, okay, you know, and he really did. I, this is, I really believed him. He said, he had, he said that he, this has been a big burden and he just wanted to get it off his chest. And he told me that he didn't remember seeing Jamie Snow at Logan. He said that they weren't allowed to talk to the, to the inmates um, when they were in sex. You know, and you know that you have guards everywhere, you know, especially in that insect. Mm-hmm. So they're not having this long conversation about him confessing to a murder through. I was asking him about the, the bars and stuff, you know, because if you're trying to think, OK, is it six inches of steel that they're I mean, are they literally having to scream at each other? And is he screaming that he killed this kid, you know, from Bloomington? Right. That's where in my affidavit which I hope you'll post, you're welcome to. Yeah, I will. In my affidavit, that's where they're talking. We're talking about the bars and the doors and, you know, those, those kinds of things. Because we're wondering how that, and he said he didn't really remember, but he said there was a slot for food. And that they couldn't talk, you know, to each other. I've never seen the, the seg cells in that particular prison, but I've seen the seg cells in several of them. And that was the first thing that caught my attention is, how could you even have a conversation? It's segregation is segregation for a reason. They're they're segregated. You can't talk to them. Exactly. Exactly. And if you did, you'd have to scream. Right. With your face <laughs> in the food door. Right. He said that that uh that two other inmates in another prison told him that Jamie did it. And I think that, that we figured out that because he was in Lincoln prior to coming to Logan that he was in there with Travis. Travis Gaddis was one of his cellies. He would not tell me who that was, but I think you know that now. He said either Crow or Katz wrote out a statement for him and had him sign it. And I'm not, I'm, I'm thinking that must have been Katz because I don't think Crow would have done that. And they were there, you know, they were there at two different times. Right. Katz was 99, uh, 99 and Crow was 94. You know, I wonder if the other inmate, wasn't at Palumbo because you know he told me that he they were bouncing him around to different segs before he testified and I thought he said the name this was off the when we weren't recording but I I could have swore he said the name Bruce it was one of the people that he was locked up that he was locked up with prior to the trial and they were talking about what they were going to testify to and you know what you could be right because now that's kind of ringing a bell you know, it, it seems it seems pretty clear that all these jailhouse snitches, they're just it's like once the ball got rolling and they knew, you know, some people were doing it. They instead of, you know, what we think of what would happen to somebody who's a snitch in prison, they're all like, oh, well, everybody's doing it. Let's just all flip on Jamie and we'll all get we'll all get these deals. Yeah. 
in Bruce's case, I'm because I'm going to put a button on this now, but for Bruce's, but but Bruce Bruce's case is one of the more obvious ones to me. I mean, on its face, for us to believe that Jamie confessed to him, and this is another thing I want to point out too. To date, there has been nothing that Jamie Snow has told me that hasn't panned out to be true. And one of the things he told me was he doesn't even know Bruce Rowland. So why would he confess to him? Well, when we look at, first of all, for him to just confess screaming through a wall and seg with all these details anyway is ridiculous. But to do that to a man who cannot even recognize you 20 feet away from you in the courtroom is is completely ridiculous for anyone even to believe that is a possibility. So he's just one more of the witnesses that I think that we can check off the list that have testified that Jamie confessed. When you start looking at the corroboration that everybody's trying to talk about, you know, that that's when that web is, starts getting really thin. You know, that's when those strands start unraveling. Well, and I, I think I think that we're there with the web on because and that's one of the reasons why I said I want to post the, the the closing arguments, the entirety of the closing arguments on the website for this episode, because I want I want people to go through and read them and look at, OK, knowing what you look at the lengths she has to go to to connect all these dots to build a case against Jamie Snow and read through them. Now, when you know, when you get to Gerardo Gutierrez and go, nope. And you go to Bruce Rowland, and nope, that one doesn't matter anymore. And Martinez's story is, nope, that one doesn't fit anymore. And Palumbo's story doesn't fit anymore. And you start pulling all these things out and look at what she's left with and see if you can even build a narrative with what she's left with. Exactly. To me, having worked on it this this length of time, you know, maybe that's what it is. But, you know, you said it's disgusting and it's sickening, but it's heartbreaking and it's hard. Sometimes, you know, to sit and listen to these tapes, even though you need to, you know, because you need to pull, you know, whatever it is out of it. It really weighs on you because it's it's lie after lie after lie after lie. And you and these people are supposed to be stand up. You know, you're paying their, ta- you know, they're, they're getting paid by your tax dollars and it makes you want to cry. I mean, it just makes you want to cry because he's got life without parole. He is not getting out unless we get him out. And that's the bottom line. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Mike Bussing is our executive producer and Shane Yoder is our sound engineer. All music for the show is created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com who also mixed and mastered this episode. Our Season 7 logo was created by me, with assistance from Zach Weaver and Shane Yoder. All of our font across all of our logos and banners was created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, Truth and Justice Pod, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our transcription team, Natalie Alicia, Pamela Westby, Pam Maples, and Jen Reese Incandela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we also have reward levels on Patreon that include access to behind-the-scenes videos of the tapings of our Friday follow-up episodes, ad-free versions of all of our episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts and hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigation. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com or you can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. And for all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter. The show's handle is at TruthJusticePod, and my personal Twitter handle is at BobRuffTruth. And you can even follow Mike at MBussing89. For more personal interactions, feel free to follow me on Instagram at TruthJusticePod. Don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, and tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, 
stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. The Ford Ranger, a vehicle for all terrains and every passion. It's a workmate, a playmate, and to its drivers, a soulmate. So how do you improve the Ford Ranger? You go all in. The all-new Ford Ranger, the UK's best-selling pickup. Now available with rear bumper steps, tailgate workbench, and enlarged load box that can fit a Euro pallet. Go break it in. Search all-new Ford Ranger. Ford Pro, driving productivity. According to SMMT data, features may be optional extras with additional cost.